Good morning. morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your love and your goodness and uh, for your watch care and mercies. We ask that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds, help us discern through all of the uh, the various distractions happening and the uh, distortions that are being presented that we can see where you're leading and follow uh, you right into right into heaven because we know you're coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson four in the quarterly for Isaiah, and the uh, title this week is uh, The Hard Way. The Hard Way. And the memory text is out of Isaiah 8.17, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Hides his face. Hides his face. Think about that for a moment. Hides his face. People are going to ask, well, what does that mean, hides his face? Why would he hide his face? Um, but the opening of the lesson tells a story of a uh, burning building, apartment building in New York, and a blind girl's on the ledge, and the firemen have a net and tell her to jump, tell her to jump, she won't jump. And finally, her dad arrives on the scene. She hears her dad's voice jump, and, and she jumps because she trusts her dad and knows his voice, and, and she's perfectly safe. She's so relaxed, she didn't even pull a muscle, it says in the story. Um, and, and so it's, it's this idea that we should trust and follow the voice of God. Question, how do you know when you hear the voice of God? You have to have heard it before. have to have heard it before. Uh, why do you think God spoke to Enoch and Moses and Abraham, but maybe not others? Why would he speak to them, but not other people? Well, I found this quotation out of the book Desire of Ages, page 668, and I really like it. See if you like it. It says, as Christ lived the law in humanity, so we may do if we will take hold of the strong, capital S, for strength. But we are not to place the responsibility of our duty upon others and wait for them to tell us what to do. There's nobody in society today who's waiting for somebody to tell them the answer, is there? (laughs) We cannot depend for counsel upon humanity. The Lord will teach us our duty just as willingly as he will teach somebody else. If we come to him in faith, he will speak his mysteries to us personally. I love this quote. Go to the Lord. I need to know the mysteries, Lord, that you need me to know. I need to know them. You want me to know. Yeah, come and reason with him. Yes, keep going with the quote. Our hearts will often burn within us as One, capital O, one, draws nigh to commune with us as he did with Enoch. Those who decide to do nothing in any line that will displease God will know, after presenting their case before him, just what course to pursue. And they will receive not only wisdom, but strength. Power for obedience, for service, will be imparted to them as Christ has promised. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Uh, Desire of Ages 668. I, I completely agree. We trust God, go to him, and have our hearts and minds open to be led. Do you know there are many people, though, I don't have this quote in the notes, but there's another quote. She goes, many people pray long and hard for, for, for God's will when he has already revealed to them the, their clear duty by the evidences and the circumstances of the case. It's very obvious what the right and the wrong is, but they don't want that. Their inclinations are in other directions, so they pray long and hard, like Balaam praying to curse the people, and he prayed long and hard. And so, God, if you pray long and hard in contradiction to what's obviously revealed reality, 
she goes on another place to say, God lets you go your way. And they think they have blessing from God, but they are deluded. <laughs> so last paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says, in the same way, God provided powerful evidence that he wanted the best for his children, but they rejected the gently flowing way he first presented to them. Thus, he had to speak to them with a roar and flood instead. The, the idea that God, wanted, instead of just speaking gently, and they go, oh, okay, that, that's godly, and let's go. They resisted, didn't listen, and so God had to raise his voice, is this idea. Do we have examples in Scripture of God's preferred method of communicating? And is if you look at Scripture, can you lay out a progression? If we don't respond to God's preferred method, does God have an escalating method of communicating with us? And I, I kind of laid out, this may not be the exact order, it might, different circumstance situations might, might get shuffled a little bit, but I think his preferred method is to approach us gently. Like he approached Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, in the Garden of Eden, as a friend, without any type of intimidation or overwhelming power that causes us to tremble. He wants to approach us gently. Uh, and so in Adam and Eve in Eden, how does he approach us gently? I would suggest you the Bible. The Bible, think about that, how gentle that is. You get to read the Bible in the safety and the security of your own space and place without pressure, without intimidation. The word of God speaking to you is you're willing to ingest it and read it. How gentle is that? It's a gentle approach, isn't it? Yeah. It's not, it's not being beaten over the head with it. <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit moving upon hearts and minds. How gentle does the Holy Spirit, can you silence the Spirit if you want? Is God created it in such a way that you can actually say, no, I'm not listening right now. <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit withdraws. You don't hear it. Doesn't mean he gives up. Waits until maybe you're a little more receptive and then the Holy Spirit comes back and you're impressed again with truth. So approach us gently. That's one. But if we don't listen to the gentle approach, does he speak louder? And even at times, like a loving parent, threaten. Does that ever happen? And you think of God at Sinai. Remember, he's thundering because they, they are having an orgy around the foot of Sinai. So he thunders. But, but what does Moses say while he's thundering? There's no need to be afraid. Yeah. So, but yes, he will. And then how about, okay, he approaches it gently. We're not listening. He thunders. We still don't get on board. Does he discipline? Does he speak through discipline? Actual actions designed. Miriam and Aaron were struck with leprosy. Remember? When they tried to usurp Moses. That was a discipline. And it was taken away when they repented. Um, no rain for three and a half years uh, when they were worshiping Baal. A discipline to reveal the god of thunder and lightning and weather that they were worshiping had no power over the, the weather. It was a discipline to try to bring them back to Yahweh worship. It wasn't a infliction of punishment. I'm going to make you pay for this. So gentle approach, speaks louder, disciplines. How about sending envoys, ambassadors, spokespersons, human or angelic, in his behalf to, to talk, to send messages, to counsel, to chastise, to encourage? Does he do that? Does God speak through agencies? And that's, of course, the Bible prophets, angels that came to Lot, 
Um, and then all of God's friends through history that are his speakers and preachers and apostles and teachers and so forth. Ultimately, he, God spoke to us through Jesus. He says in Hebrews, all, he spoke to us in Mary various and many ways. But ultimately, through his son. He sent his son, who reveals the truth about God, exposes Satan as a liar, provides, proves God's trustworthy, provides remedy to sin. Of course, he speaks to us through nature. Sends the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, to convict of duty, to enlighten our minds, to transform our hearts, to empower us. The Holy Spirit is a powerful agency. He speaks to us through. How about if we still don't listen, if we don't cooperate with the Spirit, we don't respond, we don't allow ourselves to be transformed, we reject and harden against him, does the Lord then loosen his protection and allow us to reap what we're sowing? Scorpions and snakes in the wilderness, remember? Why the scorpions and snakes come in? Because they rebelled against God, so he removed his protective hand. What's natural in a desert environment? Scorpions and snakes. God didn't say, oh, here you are in this nice safe zone. I'm going to you know, go and bring a transportation ship and, and ship in all these things from some other region. That's not what happened. He removed his hand, protective hand, and, and they, that's, they naturally came back into the community, and people started getting bitten and stung. Babylonian captivity. What is the natural course of selfish human hearts? Loving others and sacrificing for them or dominating and exploiting? And so when God removes protective hand, the Babylonians do what the Babylonians, pagan worshipers do. They dominate and control and take over. And then in our own lives, I think you all can look and maybe times in your life where you reap some things that you wouldn't have reaped had you applied what you knew to apply at that point in your life. Do we see happening in the world today as hearts harden? Do you see God's hand being removed? And then ultimately, if that doesn't bring to repentance, God lets go completely. Like King Saul. He let go of King Saul. And how did King Saul die? Suicide. He let go of Judas. How did Judas die? And the wicked in the end. Yeah. So what is God's goal? Why is he, all these methods of communion, he has a goal. He's something he wants to accomplish. What's he trying to achieve? What's that? Bring hearts and minds back to him. That's right. Restoration of his perfection in each of us for our healing and unity with him, which, which brings us life, health, and happiness eternally. That's what it brings us. Well, if God lo- is God is love and he loves everyone, why would he let any go in the end? Why would he do it? Why would he let him go if he loves them? Yes, but he loves them. It's freedom. Does he have to let them go? If he's established a kingdom based on liberty, yeah. As Christ says, it's by no arbitrary decree that the wicked are excluded from heaven, but they're excluded from heaven by their own unfitness for it. Oh, I like where you're going with that. So what happens? What would be the experience? We understand why God would do it if he loves them. Why? Yes, freedom. Yes. But what would be the experience of the person who hates God, who hates love, who hardens himself in selfishness, who gets pleasure out of torturing animals and torturing other people if they were to find themselves in God's unveiled presence? What would their experience be? 
miserable. Yes, they, yes, they, they wouldn't be happy there, would they? Would they rejoice there? No. So if God loves them at least as much as you love your children, we love our children. If he loves them at least that much, and I think we can make the claim he loves them more. Would God, if he loves them that much, use power to miraculously keep them alive so they can suffer in his presence? No, that's not love. Or would he, with tears in his eyes, give them what they've insisted upon, begging for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and let them go? And when the life giver lets go, there's no life. Sunday's lesson, uh, first paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it says Isaiah seven fourteen to 16, Emmanuel is a sign linked to a, the specific dilemma of Ahaz. Before the child, Emmanuel would be old enough to decide between uh, different kinds of food, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. This refers to the land of the kings of Syria and the northern Israel and reiterates God's promise that their power would soon be extinguished. And if you look back in last week's lesson, we're not going to read it all, but it goes through, who is this child, this child that is promised? Ask for a sign, they said to Ahaz. Ahaz wouldn't ask for a sign. And there would be a sign given, though. A, ch- a child would be born. Before this child is old enough to uh, know right from wrong, uh, left from right, uh, the, these armies will be gone and your kingdom will be safe. And this child should be called Emmanuel, God with us. And there's debate, all these different theories. Well, is this referring to Maharshala Hashbaz, um, the, the, the child of the young woman? Uh, does it refer to the child of the virgin? Jesus, uh, more to Mary. And uh, arguments back and forth. And my understanding of the, of the prophecy of Isaiah 7 is it's a dual prophecy. It's first and foremost a prophecy to Ahaz to encourage him. It's what's asked for a sign. Okay, you didn't ask for it. Here's the sign. The young woman is going to have a child. And before the child's old enough to know right and wrong, these armies will be gone. So it had to be something that happened in his time relevant. And the young woman is, um, in my view, in that case, that application, is Isaiah's wife. And the Hebrew for young woman just means one who is matured to the point they can bear children. It doesn't mean anything about whether they are married or unmarried or virgin or not virgin. It just means a woman of childbearing years. And so that's Maharshala Hasbash. But... His name should be called Emmanuel, God with us. There was a dual prophecy. There's another sign going to be given. And that is more elucidated or extrapolated by Isaiah in Isaiah 9, two chapters later. And unto us a child is born, and the government should be on his shoulders, and his name should be called um, you know, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, uh, Counselor, Mighty God. Yeah, wonderful, yeah. Wonderful Counselor, yeah. So that's how I, I view that prophecy. Um, but it says, before the child is old enough to um, know or, or drink or eat curds and honey. Eat curds and honey. The, the army's be gone. What is this curds and honey? How many, how many know what a curd is? <laughs> curds. Yeah, okay. Cur- curds is, uh, if you look up in the, in the lexicons in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word translated curds. So we're not just talking curds in English, but the Hebrew that gets translated curds, okay, is a milk-based product. So some English Bibles will render it yogurt. Some will re- render it curds. Some will render it cottage cheese. Uh, some will re- re- render it butter. Some will re- render it sour milk or buttermilk, okay? So it's some milk-based product. 
Well, what's the significance of that? Who cares? But, but there is significance. When Israel was taken out of captivity and going into um, from Egypt into Canaan, they were going into the land of? Milk and honey. Milk and honey. That's where they're going, the land of milk and honey. This is a way of, of Bible describing the land of plenty. The land where you won't go hungry. The land where you will be provided for. And so what the promise here is that before this child is such an age that those who trust God, even though there's devastation, even though all around you there is war, even though there's restriction, even though there's all this starvation and stuff, those who trust God will have an abundance of milk and honey. Yes. You brought up God's methodologies to begin with. The first example I thought of was the dispossessing of the Canaanites from Canaan. God's method was gentle. He wanted to send the hornet and the pestilence ahead of them, not only to protect Israel from warfare, but to protect the Canaanites. Sure. They're also his children. Sure. And Israelites resisted, so God let them have their way. Yep. And they suffered the consequences of a generation of warfare. And, gener- and generations of intermarriage with pa- with the pagans and the infection of pagan god concepts and many other consequences. It's bearing its fruit down to today. Yep. So God promises them, before the child's old enough to know right from wrong, those who trust God would have enough. They would have plenty. Is there a lesson for us today? Israel's facing invasion. Devastation. God sends a message that those who are faithful, he'll protect and provide for. Is there relevant for people? Is that relevant for people at the end of time? Yes. So the bottom green section uh, says, think if you were living in the northern kingdom while all of this was happening, how easily it would be to lose faith. What can we do to learn to keep our faith intact so that when tomorrow's calamities come, we can stay firm? What do you think? Well, I'm going to try to make this relevant to our times in which we live. Four years ago, the United States and the United States, many people experienced a crisis when President Trump became elected. And over the last four years, many people have lived in a state of crisis because of that. Currently, with this most recent election, a different group of people are experiencing a crisis. Uh, and... Um, because uh, the Biden and the Democrats are declared to be winners. What does all this mean for Christians? A lot of people think we should just be neutral. Have people on the political left voiced concerns over the last four years of injustice happening in our country? Yes or no? Yeah. Have people on the political right over the last six weeks been screaming about injustice that's been happening? Okay. When you believe, when you believe you have been treated unfairly, when you're convinced an injustice has occurred, some wrong, wrongly convicted of a crime, punished for something you didn't do, defrauded of your property, and no avenue is open, no court will hear your case. There's no avenue to go to to get justice. When injustice you're convinced is happening to you or someone you love, what does that do to you? How do you react to that? Does it stir up more love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. (laughs) When you have this experience that I've just described, last four years, people on the left have been feeling it's all unjust, it's unfair. Last six weeks, people on the right have been feeling it's all unfair, it's all unjust. Does that sense of injustice with no avenue to go to give you more fruits of the Spirit? Or does it stir a different spirit in your heart? Who do you think is behind that different spirit? Understand clearly, the kingdoms of the world are whose? When Satan took Jesus to the mountaintop and showed him 30% of the kingdoms of the world, 90% of the kingdoms, all of the kingdoms of the world, these are mine, I will give them to you. All the kingdoms of the world are Satan's domain. God's kingdom is not of of this world, and his kingdom operates only in the world today in hearts and minds. The kingdom of God is within you, within you. Understand this. Amen. And this battle, Satan wants to destroy the kingdom of God in your heart and establish his kingdom in your heart. He does this through all of his agencies that he can manipulate on this planet. So understand, political left is Satan's kingdom. Political right is Satan's kingdom. They're both his kingdom. And he plays them off of each other to infect your heart with a sense of outrage to destroy the kingdom of God in your heart. Understand all the kingdoms of the world operate on what type of law? Design law or imposed law? That's Satan's kingdom. Arbitrary rules open to and understand. All kingdoms of the world operate on imposed rules, legislated laws that are open to manipulation and abuse. That's why the last four years, certain movements have happened about penal legal justice, who gets imprisoned, who gets arrested, who gets stopped by law enforcement, how they're treated. It's not fair. It's unjust. The law is not a player applied equally to, uh, across all racial lines and so forth and so on. It's unjust. It's unfair. Because arbitrary rules can be manipulated And then in this last election, from the other side, uh, all types of laws were manipulated and changed to allow voting irregularities to happen, and there's no consistency across the state. It's not fair, and this is what, who controls these types of laws? This is not God's kingdom. It's how the, the enemy works, and it's open to manipulation and abuse. If we place our faith, understand, if we place our faith, My faith, my sense of security, I feel safe. If we place that in human governments, human courts, the right politicians, the right justices, what will be the outcome? Always in every government, in the entire world, in the entire history of the world, the outcome is injustice, abuse, exploitation, and unfairness. You cannot point to a government in the history of the world that wasn't in some way unjust, exploitive, abusive, and unfair. The human systems of law and order give the illusion. You know what an illusion is? An illusion looks to be something, it's not real. An illusion is a mirage. 
When you're in a desert and you see the heat coming up off of the sand, or maybe you're out and you've seen it sometimes on a highway, on a hot, somebody, you see that heat, it's glimmering, it looks like water. There's, there's water. That's an illusion. It's no water. It's not real. Human systems give the illusion of justice, but they're all unjust. Especially if you understand what justice in God's kingdom is. God's kingdom justice is always restoring and healing, restoring and healing to righteousness. That's what justice is. It's not punishment and retribution. It's not punishment and retribution. But understand now, to the degree in a worldly kingdom, in a worldly government that operates on imposed arbitrary laws, to the degree that the operators... The people wielding the reins of power, the legislators, the administrators, the bureaucrats, the justices and judges, to the degree those are righteous people, they have God in their heart, like Daniel, to the degree you have righteous people in a corrupt government, Babylon, you mitigate the abuse and the injustice. Not because that's a godly government, not because the system operates like God would have it operate, not because the laws are godly, but there's godly people. To the degree the people give up their belief in God, turn their hearts against Him, harden themselves, embrace worldly methods as godly. Dark ages, people claim belief in God, but they use worldly methods as godly methods. To the degree people become corrupted, then the systems of government that they run become even more abusive, more um, unfair, more unjust, more exploitive. And one of the big deceptions happening in the world right now is that people, Christian people, are being duped into thinking that you can side with left or right and be on God's side. No, both sides are Satan's camp. The kingdom of God's within you. You can be righteous. And like Daniel, find yourself in a corrupt system and, and live a righteous life, but you will always be in contention with those who look at Daniel. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What was happening? They were being righteous, but the other pol- politicians, oh no, you, we will not tolerate righteousness in our worldly government. And you will be targeted. Wendell. Also based on the kind of God you believe God to be. Yes. So that's the Dark Ages. Yes. Or even currently. Yes. We have many people who feel that God is an avenging God who will create justice as a result of some arbitrary whatever. But even so, righteous people can mitigate, I mean limit, the injustice is unfairness in these human arbitrary world systems and governments. They can mitigate it. But even the, the best intended righteous hearts running a worldly system, injustice will still incur because of human ignorance, inability to know all the facts and all the variables, human biases and prejudices, um, the blindness of your own uh, motives of heart, uh, or outright selfishness of the selfish who are manipulating the system to get their ends. The human systems, even with righteous people mitigating, are still going to be unjust and unfair. But again, as, as as the... 
population, the numbers of people in society become more and more godless. The government and the society itself becomes more unjust and unfair and abusive. It can't help but. And then what happens with the injustice? I just want to, I'm explaining, I'm not justifying. See, I can understand why a child who was molested grew up and ended up molesting. I can understand how that abuse caused scars that they acted out themselves later. I can understand it. That doesn't mean I justify it or promote it or defend it. Okay? So when I, when I give an explanation, to what I'm about to give, it's not a justification. It's an understanding. And so when people experience the injustice in society operated through the levers or through the, the uh, various governmental agencies, and they have the experience, there is no avenue to remedy. There's no court I can go to to have my day in court, to have my voice heard, to have the evidence of truth come out. If you don't have Jesus in your heart, that leads to outrage and hurt and anger. And ultimately, we will have justice in a worldly sense. And where does it always lead? To violence. Vigilante justice. You see this depicted in movies all the time. How many movies or other types of entertainment have you seen where somebody's family was hurt by a drug kingpin or a group of druggers and they paid off the judges and they got off and, and, and there was no accountability and it was all fraudulently done and that person went off as a vigilante to carry out their own justice and bring them to judge and kill them basically. Okay. This is a common theme. Why do they do it? Because the systems of government are no longer fair and just, and it, and it breeds that sense of outrage. And then, and understand, going out and killing somebody who did wrong in order to make them pay for their crime of murdering your family is not God's justice. It's not how God works. If you had God's justice, what would God do for that murderer? Make him a saint and have him be your neighbor in heaven. He would become a trustworthy friend. That's God's form of justice. This other thing is Satan's kingdom. And this is what he does. He sets this up to get these factions so we fight against each other. Yes, comment. With regard to our involvement in politics and so forth, we as God's children are ambassadors of his kingdom. And ambassadors don't get to vote in the country that they're serving in. <laughs> That's interesting. That's an interesting concept. I... uh I kind of like the principle you're describing, but why don't they get to vote in the country they serve in? Because they're involved. They're from the other country. Because of God's design for things or because of arbitrary rules made up by those governments? So you've taken a principle and then interpreted it through human arbitrary rules. Right. So I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> but I like the sentiment. They're not a citizen of that country. Right. Right. And so you have influence or possession or whatever of the kingdom in which you are a part of. So it's a different discussion. Paul clearly used his Roman citizenship to his advantage when he needed to. Did it work out to his advantage, though, or did it work out to his disadvantage? Hard to know. He would have been killed earlier by the Jews if his citizenship didn't get him rescued, but he ultimately got executed anyway. So um, but he did use it, even though he was a citizen of heaven. 
So understand human governments as we move forward. Be very clear. We will get more and more injustice in this world, not more justice. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. You understand it's going to form a system that Revelation describes as beastly. And the whole world is going to join together. It's forming. If you can't see it, then you should pray for the eyes to have of the Spirit. Because it's so obvious to me. I can see it so clearly forming. Understand then what we've said. All the kings of the world operate on Satan's principles of imperialism. They're all unfair. We mitigate the unfairness when the hearts and minds of people are righteous in those offices. That will mitigate it, but it won't eliminate it. What then will contribute, though, but, and as hearts turn away, though, and more and more people turn away from God, then the government's become more corrupt. What contributes to people turning away from God? What would contribute to society becoming more and more godless? Would teaching evolutionism in our schools help a society have more godly people or turn people away from God? Would it be part of the end-time strategy to prepare a world to operate on, as Satan would have them operate. Would secularism and humanism and communism, would these philosophies as they're promoted and taught to our children, would they help people maintain a belief in God? Even if you understand that some of the theologies taught are, are corrupt theologies, if you look at the Dark Ages, terribly corrupt church, but the people were still searching for God, and millions were still finding him through that dark system, and the Holy Spirit was still working. But is it a difference when people don't even believe in God, won't search for him, a considerate foolish, they're not even asking the questions anymore? Different outcome. Do you see the war? This is a spiritual war happening. A war over the knowledge of God. It's raging right now. And we, like Ahaz, so we're talking about Ahaz, have a decision to make. When we see our world being attacked by those who are against God's methods, principles, kingdom, the evolutionists, the secularists, the humanists, the communists, yes, they're working against God's kingdom, folk. You may not like to hear it, but they are. Will we, like Ahaz, turn to other human agencies to deliver us, or will we turn to God? The Bible tells us that People, including many who are Christian at the end of time, will turn to human systems, forming a beastly coalition that promotes what they think is right by the methods of coercion and force. God is, I believe, permitting these events to happen in our world as they're happening to help shake people out of their loyalties to these human systems and human parties. God's kingdom is not of this world. And when we have our affections restored to God's kingdom, we will be loyal to him and we will see every human being as a child of God. Brothers and sisters, either healthy or unhealthy. It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat, black or white, rich or poor, American or not American. Every human being is a child of God. Are they participating with God or not? And then when we see people we see as being spiritually unhealthy, abusive, controlling, manipulative, deceitful, if we see that and we love them, what's our attitude? We grieve for them. We don't hate them. We're sad for them. Monday's lesson asks us to read uh, 2 Kings 16, 10 through 18. And it's uh, about King Ahaz, who went to meet with uh, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. 
Yes, Tiglath Pileser. Uh, and he saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest to sketch of the altar and detailed plans and had him build this pagan altar outside the temple between the bronze altar and the and the um, bra- and the uh, ba- and the laver and moved the bronze altar aside and then began uh, having burnt offerings on this altar to this pagan god at the temple in Jerusalem and the priests offered um, their sacrifices. To this altar, and so did uh, King Ahaz when he returned. That's what the story tells you. And so, as we read, let me just break down what happened in this story. Ahaz was king of Judah. Judah is being threatened with invasion. Ahaz doesn't turn to the Lord, but goes to the Assyrian king for help. Think through the process. Apply it to yourself. We're in a situation. We're being threatened. We're feeling frightened. Do we go to the Lord for help? We go to some worldly agency. Now, the Assyrian king, in order to give help, requires something of Judah. That Judah submit to their authority and recognize their God as superior to the God of Israel. So Ahaz erects an altar to the Assyrian God and instructs the priests to make their sacrifices to Yahweh on this altar to the Assyrian God and sets aside the brazen altar. And the priests do it. And then Ahaz also officiates at some of those um, religious services. The lesson for us today, are we turning to God when we're threatened or the gods of this world? Do our church leaders resist the call to align with the gods of this world or are they advocating the very policies that are coming out of the worldly governments to restrict religious liberty restrict freedom of speech to uh restrict assembly uh, are they willing to go along with what the world wants ahaz understand ahaz did not tear down the temple he introduced into the temple system foreign elements, foreign altar, foreign God, and moved the brazen altar. Introduced practices not keeping with what God had designed or instructed. Do we find in Christianity, unchristian ideas have entered? Has God's law been replaced with imposed rules? Has God been misrepresented as uh, from creator and healer to judge and punisher? Do we see movements happening in the world today that are motivating people to embrace more and more of God's methods, present truth and love and leave people free, respect and empathize with others? Or do we see movements afoot to see others as more of a threat to us that we need to control and force to comply to what we believe is right? I will tell you, I did a, uh, a TV interview on a, radio, on a television station in Memphis yesterday, and they asked me about this uh, whole lockdown COVID restriction stuff in relation to people struggling with addictions. And I pointed out to the person, I said, for some people in our society, COVID is a serious and real life-threatening uh, threat to their health and wellness and could kill them, for some people. There's no doubt about that. But for other people, COVID is not their most serious life-threatening concern. They have a much more serious health concern relapsing into their addiction. And relapsing into the addiction for some people will kill them where COVID will not. If we love others, 
We want to protect them from all threats to their health, not just COVID. And therefore, we wouldn't want to say, we will stop all 12-step meetings to protect people from COVID, knowing that some of those people are going to relapse in their addiction and die of an overdose. We're going to say, we are want you to be warned about this, but you need to evaluate in your circumstance, which is your greatest health threat, COVID or your addiction? And do you need your 12-step meeting to stay sober? You see, what happens in society when you become fearful and you become threatened and you and fear takes root, fear is very instinctual. And what fear does, it narrows your focus. If you're on a trail and you come around a corner, black bears five feet in front of you, you will become very frightened and very focused. You will lose sight at that moment of the th- of the stone in your shoe. That will no longer be on your screen. You're not aware of that. A branch is falling out of a tree and might hit you. You're ignoring that branch. That branch is not really relevant because there is a bear five feet in front of you staring you in the eye. Okay? It closes your focus. It narrows your focus. That's what happens when you become afraid. And when you become afraid, not only does your focus become narrow, you begin assessing the world in friend or foe thinking. Friend or foe. That's how you begin to think. Fight or flight, but friend or uh, fight or flight, friend or foe. Is is this person going to help me? Is this person going to hurt me? Is this person safe? Uh, So think, take the bear, put some other threat there. uh, uh, Somebody's in the mall and they start shooting a gun. You become very focused at that point, and you forget about your package that you just paid three hundred dollars for, and you leave it sitting there. Uh, Back at three hundred dollar package is not relevant anymore. Very focused. Somebody uh, uh, somebody across the way is not wearing their mask. <laughs> but somebody ahead is shooting a gun. I promise you, the mask not wearing becomes irrelevant at that moment. You become very focused. Okay? And then you start assessing friend or foe. You see somebody in a police officer's uniform. In that circumstance, what do you think? Friend, get behind them. Yeah. You don't know them. You don't know that they may be part of a of a group that's infiltrating to take over, and they're actually a criminal in a police uniform and using the fire as a distraction to get in to rob something. You just quickly, without evidence, it, we're in friend or foe assessment. That's what we do. Friend, foe, friend, foe, friend, foe, with very little actual reasoning going on. It's very instinctual. And so what happens is identify friend, like me. Foe, not like me. Oh, I'm white. Friend, black, not friend. Because we don't think when we're in fear assessment road. And that's why there's a lot of bigotry and other stuff happening, because we're afraid. Friend, Democrat, not friend, foe, Republican. We're not thinking, we're not evaluating, we're in fear mode. And what's happened in our society is COVID has become single focus, single data point. Fear, 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 and we focus on that one, and we narrow our perspective, and we want to protect from COVID. I'm not saying it's not a real threat. Did I just say it was not a real threat? No, it's a threat to some, very serious. Some people will die from this. But it is not a threat to everyone. Some people will not die from this. Some people will die from their addiction or suicide because of depression or other things. Do we love other people enough to say, hey, we want to protect everybody from whatever the threat is to their life, Or, no, we're willing to sacrifice those addicts as long as we can protect ourselves from COVID. 
And that's the kind of process you have happening in this country. Because why? Fear goes up, and when fear goes up, what goes down? Love. Love goes down. We don't love other people, folks, when we're afraid. As we love others, perfect love casts out all fear. As we love others, we empathize, we're concerned with them. Greater love is no man that he sacrificed that other person's life to protect myself. Is that what Jesus said? Greater love is no man that he laid down his life. Oh, no, no, that's not the messaging we're hearing today. We will not put ourselves in danger to help protect that person who is in addiction. We have to shut down those meetings. I'll just let you all think about that. Understand Satan's grand strategy. He uses it over and over and over again um, in many different ways. He creates two false paradigms that fight against each other. And he tricks people into thinking one of them is right. And thus they pick one of those sides and fight against each other. See this in theology all the time. I have given examples about that in the Eucharist and and the Catholic Eucharist and the Protestant uh, uh, communion service. And and they both argue over what it means. Is he offering a sacrifice or just offering his merits to remind the father of a sacrifice? Because you have to pay the father with the, with the blood sacrifice in order to pay for your sin. And it's, it's, no, you can't sacrifice. It's, that's what he's offering. No, he's offering and reminding him of the sacrifice already made. It's, they both miss the point that they both worship a God who, if he doesn't get the uh, blood of a human sacrifice, is going to kill you. It's it's a trap. It's both false. Republican and Democrat. Same thing. Satan's grand strategy over and over again, and then he uses an injustice. He'll do injustice from one side to inflame the outrage of the other side, and then have them respond to try to correct the injustice by doing something that is unjust to somebody on that side, but it's fair to somebody on this side. It benefits somebody on this side, but it hurts somebody on that side. And it's back and forth, back and forth. You want to see it most extreme, just see what happened with the Palestinians and Israelis over the last hundred years in, in the Middle East. It's constant, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But what method did Jesus tell us we should use if we want to be part of his kingdom, children of the Father of heaven, with the kingdom working. Here's what Jesus said. This is out of Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist the evil person. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, then go two with him. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. What kind of laws are you describing here? He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the final culmination of events we're heading into. The beastly systems of this world are gaining more and more power. 
The four angels of Revelation are loosening their hold, and Satan's agencies are gaining more power, which means more and more injustice and more coercion and more exploitation, more fear, and fear leads people to control and restrict liberty, which means less love and the love of many wax cold, except in the hearts of the people who have been sealed of God. That's the place we find love in the world. Everywhere else, it's being extinguished. So we will see injustice, fraud, deceit, exploitation. We're going to see it. It's going to get worse and worse. And what do we do? Do we seek to punish? Do we seek to get more political power, to dominate, to force, to silence? Or do we love? Do we forgive? Do we trust God with our very lives? Do you understand what I'm telling you is contrary to your natural instinct? Your natural instinct is going, eh, eh, no. No, I want to smack them. No, that's our natural instinct. And that's the carnal heart. And that's where we pray. Give me a new heart and right spirit, O Lord. Create in me a new heart and right spirit. Cut out the old. Give, and I've been praying hard that God would give me more love for my enemies. Because I don't naturally love my enemies. I want to smack them. That's my natural. But I recognize that's, that's a problem in me, not in them. And I need that to change. So I was uh, preparing the class this week, and I came across a quotation of a book called Early Writings one of the founders of the Adventist Church, and uh, uh, consider, and it exposes a strategy of Satan that Satan used on our first parents in Eden. And I want to pull this out and let you see it. When Satan became fully conscious that there was no possibility of his being brought back into the favor of God, his malice and hatred began to manifest. He consulted with his angels, and a plan was laid uh, to still work against God's government. When Adam and Eve were placed in the beautiful garden, Satan was laying plans to destroy them. In no way could, his, could this happy couple be deprived of their happiness if they obeyed God. Pause. Understand, Satan cannot corrupt any human soul. He cannot do it. You must, we must choose to be corrupted. Now, he can deceive, he can trick, he can pressure, he can tempt, but he cannot corrupt. We must choose it in order to be corrupted. By believing the lies or preferring, embracing, and practicing his methods. That's how we're corrupted. And, and I give you an example how through politics and through earthly governments, he does injustice that outrages you to get you to try to make justice by using his methods and embracing them and think they're right. And that's very beastly of you. But you'll feel good when you do it as long as the people that you think are wrong are getting punished. But you get corrupted in the process. Okay, keep going with the quote. Satan could not exercise his power upon them unless they should first disobey God and forfeit his favor. Some plan must be devised to lead them to disobedience that they might incur God's frown. Frown? Yes, he, he is displeased when we hurt ourselves. He doesn't like it. He doesn't smile and go, oh, I'm so happy for them. What well, hurts him? and be brought under uh, under the more direct influence of Satan and his angels. It was decided that Satan should assume another form and manifest an interest for man. Notice the methodology here. Do you see the strategy being used today? I see it so clearly. Evil agencies, I use the word agencies, 
The beast of revelation is an agency. Whose power does it wield? The dragons. Okay, understand. Human governments and human systems are agencies of the dragon. Okay, do you see agencies, evil agencies masquerading as agents of good? Representatives in power claiming to be interested in benefiting the lives of the people, of improving one's circumstance, of lifting them out of suffering, but in reality they only continue to violate God's design, which damage the souls of the people that they say they're there to help. I see it all over the place. Continuing on with the quote, talking about the devil, he must insinuate against God's truthfulness and create doubt whether God did mean just what he said. Do you see how millions today are deceived about God's law? his design protocols for life, who have accepted arbitrariness as the way God runs things, and have seen God running his universe no different than a dictator. In the lesson, it was, uh, and there was a quotation in the lesson, um, on Tuesday's lesson, and it says, um, indeed, what we see here is a theme that permeates the entire book of Isaiah, which is, though there... There would be judgments on God's enemies in Judah and other nations uh, delivered in the form of military disaster, suffering, and exile. The Lord would be with his faithful survivors. What do you understand the judgments of God to be? The judgments of God. Do you see the word judgments through human law lens? If you process judgments, the judgments of God through the human law lens, you understand them to be judicial rulings and inflictions of punishments justly deserved. That's how we see judgments. You've done wickedly. He's given you a chance. He's uh, he sent his prophets. He's warned you. But now you wouldn't repent. He Therefore, you don't get any legal pardon, and he will convict you of guilt, and he'll punish you on this earth, and he will ultimately punish you in hell. That's human law systems. If you see judgment through design law, then you understand God's judgments are his accurate diagnosis. A doctor, you go into a doctor with all kinds of symptoms, and he makes a judgment. Oh, here's what's wrong. God judges the problem, and then God judges the best action to take to bring remedy or relief or restoration or redirection to the problem. And God, that's what God's judgments are, acting most righteously, Understanding the circumstances of the people involved with the highest likelihood of getting the best outcome. That's God's judgments. Here's an interesting historic quote out of the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 587. Tell me what you think. 587? 587, yes. How great is the long suffering of God towards the wicked? The idolatrous Philistines and backsliding Israel had alike enjoyed the gifts, enjoyed the gifts of his providence, enjoyed all the blessings. 10,000 unnoticed mercies were silently falling in the pathway of ungrateful, rebellious men. Do we think that's happened to America and the world? Millions of blessings that fall and people don't even notice. Every blessing spoke to them of the giver, but they were indifferent to his love. Oh, do we see this in our world today? Blessings and they deny there's even a God. The forbearance of God was very great toward the children of men, but when they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, he removed from them his protecting hand. 
Why would God remove his protecting hand? Why would he do such a thing? Isn't he loving? Isn't he kind? Doesn't he want to, does he want suffering to happen? Does he want people to be injured and hurt? Why would he remove a protecting hand? Well, think through how reality works. What would the result be in the circumstance described if he didn't remove his protecting hand? What would people come to believe about their sinful condition and their sinful behavior if God continued to protect and bless them? What would the conclusion be? This is right. This is good. Nothing wrong with this. And what would happen to their hearts and minds? They would harden and be destroyed. And in the Old Testament times, the avenue for Messiah would have been erased. Let's continue on the quote. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works and in the warnings, counsels, and reproofs of his word, and thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. What were his judgments? It was already described in the same paragraph removing his protecting hand and allowing them to reap what naturally occurs when one is out of harmony with God and he's not insulating us from that. What happens in the world today as people become more godless, reject the truth about him? Yes, Wendell. It was an active issue on their part to hear the voice of God through the through his created works, through his, his ministries. In other words, they had to go out and read, listen, whatever, to what he had already spoken. It wasn't automatically going to be filtered in with a voice in your head. Yeah, that's good. You have to have an open, receptive mind. Yeah, I'm searching. What do we see in the world today? As time unfolds, we move, and we're in the end of time. Got, Revelation speaks about pouring out the vials of God's wrath upon the earth, his judgments coming. Is this an infliction of God's using power? Is this the four angels being loosened and as we harden our hearts against them? So uh, the same author that wrote the other, this is out of Manuscript Release, Volume 14, page 3. It was shown that the judgments of God would not come out directly, uh, uh, would not directly come out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only safe path then if those who have been the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is work at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest both by sea and land will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. It is He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we ever dreamed of. And then this is out of uh, Sermons and Talks, Volume 2, page 69. I want to tell you another thing. This is how it starts. I want to tell you another thing. The vials of God's wrath and the sprinkling of them are already coming. What is, what is the matter that we do not discern it? It is because the light of truth does not affect the heart. The Spirit of God is being withdrawn from the world. You hear of calamities by land and sea, and they are constantly increasing. What is the matter? The Spirit of God is taken away from those who have the lives of men in their hands, and Satan is coming to control them because they give themselves to his control. 
Those who profess to be the children of God do not place themselves under the guardianship of heavenly angels. And as Satan is a destroyer, he works through those men and they make mistakes and they will get drunk. And because of intemperance, many times bring these terrible calamities upon us. And see the storms and tempests. Satan is working in the atmosphere. He is poisoning the atmosphere. Certainly not with a viral um, you know, toxin of any kind, I wouldn't think. He is poisoning the atmosphere. And here we are dependent upon God for our lives. We pre- our present and eternal life. And being in the position that we are, we need to be wide awake, wholly devoted, wholly converted, wholly concentrated, concentrated to God. But we seem to sit as though we were paralyzed. God of heaven, wake us up. Remember the, the, the parable of the virgins? How many were sleeping? The wise and the foolish? How many? All were asleep. And do you see, just in his Ahaz, Ahaz's day, when the threats were coming, people turned away from God, hardened their hearts, go after false and worldly systems. That's what's happening today. And the calamities come and people are not turning to God and they will ultimately end up blaming the people of God because we don't support the restrictive rules. We don't support the green movement to save the planet. We don't support the restrictions of liberties. Therefore, it's our fault these things are coming. We're 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 the super spreaders. You see in this room, most people are not wearing a mask. You evil, corrupt people. No, seriously, this is how they will view you. Rather than giving liberty and respect. Oh, boy, there's so much more in the notes we're not going to get to, but I did want to jump to Friday and just make a comment on Friday's lesson. Uh, so we'll skip uh, thir- Wednesday and Thursday, and we'll go to Friday. And in Friday's lesson, there's a quote from Great Controversy, and it says, uh, talking about spiritualism now and how spiritual forces and spiritualism and the occult will influence people. It says, in the days of the Hebrews, there was a class of people who claimed to, uh, who claimed, as do the spiritualists of today, to hold communication with the dead. But the familiar spirits, as these visitants from other worlds were, were called, are declared by the Bible to be spirits of devils. And I just thought, what do you think would happen today if people were to have communication through our SETI satellites from other planets? Aliens from other planets claiming to be intelligences from other worlds. Remember, I just said for these are claimed to be from other worlds. Okay, and we have these otherworldly intelligences communicating to us through our satellites messages and instructions. How many people today would be duped by that? Prepare for it, folks. I think it's going to happen. I think we're going to have alien contacts. I think Satan's agencies are going to present themselves as intelligences from other planets. I think it's very likely. And that's how the spirits of devils and the demons want one other avenue of deceit. It's very likely to happen. And he will come claiming to be an intelligence from another world with supernatural powers and or maybe just technological powers. It's not miraculous. I just have technology that make, looks like miracles to you. And I can bring you up to my level of, of technological proficiency. All we have to do is get these non-believers who don't want to follow us. We just have to get everybody on board and with a one system. I could see that as an avenue. I'm not a prophet. I haven't been given a vision. I'm just speculating. 
Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and for your goodness. And as we watch what's happening in the world, let us not be duped by the systems of the world and participating in the methods of, of imperialism and, and coercion and force. And let your kingdom of love and truth and liberty be established in our hearts and, and enable us to love our enemies, to see through the trick to to be to overcome those feelings that tempt us with outrage so that we can respond as you would have us respond and and really witness the kingdom of heaven on earth we pray in your holy name amen